Our first reading of God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 17 and 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading of God's holy word this morning is the 73rd Psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to a desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. This is the word of the Lord. The story is told of a old man who was on his way to a revival meeting during the Second Great Awakening. The minister had come to uh, preach on the Ten Commandments, and the old man was a pillar in the church, and he was looking forward to the meeting. He walked in feeling very 
confident, but when he walked out, he had a look upon his face that he had been effectively shattered. He was kind of overwhelmed. And someone came up to him and said, Brother Bob, what's the matter? Brother Bob kind of grabbed the sides of the building and said, Boy, I'm crying I didn't make no graven images. It's funny because with Bob's response, he shows us he doesn't really understand the second commandment. If you are familiar with the Ten Commandments and have worked through them and what they really honestly mean, they are amazingly holistic. They take up the entirety of one's life. There's literally nothing in reality and in creation that the Ten Commandments don't touch upon when you really look at them. Every other commandment of God is rooted somewhere in those ten, which is the pattern of a suzerain covenant. You always have a written covenant with a couple of commandments that God gives or the king gives you to do, and they're very broad, and then he gives you this giant packet, which is if you're going to keep the big broad thing, then you got to do all these. Well, that's the way the Ten Commandments are, and to begin our sermon this morning, which is effectively focused on the proverb reading that I gave, we should consider one of the commandments we just confessed. We should consider the Tenth Commandment. Confessionally, as Reformed Christians, in the Shorter Catechism, this is what we say about the Tenth Commandment beginning in question 79 and running to question 81. Which is the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, they shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. What is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. So the Shorter Catechism is a brief statement. You can get much more detailed than that if you like. But um, it does its work as an overview. Uh, you are called to be satisfied with what you have. I mean, that's the essence of what the Reformers said the Tenth Commandment meant. God is not in any way a God of injustice, but God is also not in any way a God of fairness, and the two things are not synonymous. Things can be fair and not be just. Things can be just and not be fair. God is the creator, and he is also the provider. And our Lord Jesus Christ taught us very clearly in the parable of the talents and the parable of the cities that it's God who gives whatever anybody has, anybody. 
And God is represented by the property owner, and the property owner can give out as he likes, and the property owner gives to one guy ten, ten talents or ten cities. Another guy, he has five, which is half less, but they're his, and he can do what he wants. And then to another guy, he gives two. What is the basis of his giving this out? Proverb doesn't tell us. The landowner, the king, probably has his reasons, but he doesn't share them with his servants. He has a particular desire that one have ten talents and one have two, and so he scatters them out, and it's his property. There's absolutely nothing wrong with what he is doing. <clears throat> if you are expecting fairness from God, you are deeply, deeply going to be disappointed because God is not a God of fairness. We oftentimes think of the parable of the talents in terms of inner gifts and graces, and in fact, our use of the word talent today, 2,000 years after Christ gave the parables, reflects the fact that that's how we think about them. When I say I have a talent, you don't assume anything other than I'm good at something. But the talent was a measure of money. A talent of silver or a talent of gold was actually a international monetary commodity and so when the original hearers heard these parables, they would have said, oh, he's talking about stuff. He's talking about material wealth. And he is. He is also talking about gifts and graces. He is talking about the characteristics you have been given. It does include all of that. But the original hearers would have initially thought he's talking about money, and they're not wrong. The father is described as giving out tangibly, physically, what he wants to give out to whoever he wants to give it. And some will have ten, some will have five, and some will have uh, two, or maybe some will have one, and some will have fifteen. It's really up to him to give out. And the tenth commandment is, God has done this, you should be content because God has done it, and you can trust God, and you don't lust for more than he has given you. Now, that is not as absolute as it may sound. When the Apostle Paul spoke on the issue of uh, this very commandment, in the context of human slavery, uh, this is what he had to say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17 through 24. As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So you can see a spirit of contentment there. God called you at a certain point in your life. Be satisfied with where you're at. But then Paul goes on. 
let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, uh, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men, which would go downward from your state. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that estate in which he was called. So Paul looks at slaves and doesn't say, okay, God is the God of fatalism. Uh, we are Stoics. You just have to be totally happy with where you're at and, you know, you don't care about the world. If you can become more than a slave, do that. That's not breaking the Tenth Commandment. But while you are a slave, you need to be content with the talents that God has given you, including at this moment that you are, in fact, in slavery. The Ten Commandments are organized in greatest to least. The greatest commandment in all the commandments is, you shall have no other God before me in the Ten Commandments, because if you break that one, none of the rest have any meaning whatsoever. God must be your God. They move downward in severity, if you can think of it that way, till you get to the commandment we are considering, thou shalt not covet. But ironically, this which could be considered the least of the Ten Commandments is the one that makes all the rest so amazingly deadly. Because, as the Reformers pointed out, when God says, do not covet anything that is your neighbor's, and you are called to be content, he brings the commandment into the heart and the will. Okay, so you have not committed adultery with your neighbor's wife, but are you inwardly wanting your neighbor's wife? Well, the Tenth Commandment says you're wanting something God has given, so you die in even though you didn't do anything physically. Um, are you really hateful of your neighbor internally, but you grit your teeth and smile? Well, you know, you're breaking the Tenth Commandment because you want to do something else. You're not content with where you're at. So, in a very real way, the least of the commandments is like the scorpion's tail. You miss the other nine, but it gets you. You're poisoned, and you die. We have a proverb that says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And God's spirit says, I'll make him drink, and he's in rough shape if he doesn't want to drink. It goes internally. Be content with where you are. And if you heard the Puritans, it's got a positive spin to it that you should actually be happy for your neighbor. He has something you don't have. Rather than envying that and saying, I want that, why does he have that? I'm happy for him that he has it. I'm actually going to bless him. Um, I actually saw a church live this out really well some 25 years ago. If you're familiar with Lexington and her churches, Southland Christian Church now has several campuses, but at this time there was one gigantic big campus just outside of town, 
And, uh, you know, you had 6,000 people driving into worship. And right across from Southland was this little Baptist church. It shared a road with Southland. You had, it was here, Southland was there. You had to drive down this road to get the parking lot. And this little church, the building, would not have hold, held more than 80 people. Well, uh, Wayne Smith was the pastor at this time, and I knew him, and I was talking with him. And he said, I had the most remarkable experience. And what happened? He said, well, I got a call from our neighbor, the small little Baptist church across the way. That always is likely not a good thing when, you know, you're going to call from your neighbor and it's a different religion. He's probably going to get angry at us because we've got all sorts of people coming down this road, parking our parking lot, but it, we have service at the same time. You can imagine what's happening in this little Baptist church. You've got all these cars going by. Their people can't get in their parking lot. He said, but it wasn't like that at all. The minister of that little Baptist church called up and said, hey, I see you're having a parking problem. I was talking with my deacons, and we were wondering if we could help. Uh, really, somebody needs to kind of direct traffic, make the tr flow of traffic happen. We were wondering if we could serve you guys and direct traffic so everybody gets to their parking lot at the same time, and we're all happy. Wayne said, that's the most amazing thing. 80 people, and they want to help us. That's what the commandment looks like. That's, that's the positive, the proactive. You are to not envy, you're to be happy for your neighbor. But it does bring up the question, who then is my neighbor? And, of course, we know from the parables, again, that Jesus will flip that on us and say, quite frankly, everybody is our neighbor. That means that our brother in Christ, whom we like, is our neighbor. And he is not too hard to live this commandment out with. Okay, you know, I don't have what Elliot has, but Elliot's my brother. I love the guy. And so he has it. I'm happy he has it. Perfectly easy to do that, kind of. I mean, you can get bitter anyway, but that's not that hard. It also includes that guy who isn't my brother in Christ, but he's really kind of not a bad guy, and... You know, he, he, he borrowed my lawnmower. I got it back after a year, but I got it back. He invites me to barbecues. I'm supposed to be happy for him, too. He has something I don't have, but God bless him. God gave out five to him and two to me. Uh, we're moving into harder territory because now we're talking about somebody who is outside of God's covenant, and you begin to wonder, why does God make it rain on the just and the unjust? It would be kind of nice if we got more rain if we were the just. But again, that's not that hard. I mean, after all, he's a guy who you don't mind, you like him. But it also means those sinful people who sin in such a way that we don't like them are also our neighbor. Uh, it may be the wicked. It may be just a sinner who steps on our face. But the commandment doesn't let us out of this at any point. It's God has given us ten, he's given us five, he's given us two. Wherever you sit, be happy with that. When you look at the next guy, even if you don't really like the next guy at all, and he's sitting there on ten, 
you'd be happy for him too, and that becomes quite a bit of a problem. That makes the commandment very hard to keep. And that brings us to our Proverbs and our Psalm. Proverbs 23.17 begins with, Do not let your heart envy sinners. The heart is really the essence of the Tenth Commandment, as we've already seen. This proverb, which covers both verses, begins with the heart. Psalm 73, if you go through it at length and you look for the word heart, you'll find heart comes up like six to eight times, and the psalmist actually shows you the movement of his heart through the event. Uh, You know, I was envious in my heart towards the wicked. I said in my heart, I've cleansed my heart in vain. Surely God is the strength of my heart. I mean, if, if you map this out... Everything happening in Psalm 73 is in the heart. Solomon says, don't let your heart envy sinners. Well, why would we do that? Well, it's because those dirty SOBs don't deserve what they have. I deserve what they have. I have been faithful to God. Why does he have that? That's about as human a response as you can possibly imagine. But the proverb says... In your heart, don't envy sinners. And then the next line is, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. It's a parallelism and it's a contrast. And it means in this particular case, you can pretty much do one or the other. If you envy the sinner, it's going to eat at your fear of the Lord. And if you have a proper, zealous fear of the Lord, it's going to take away your envy. But you're, you're, you're in one camp or the other. It's like Joshua calling the people, you know, go serve the gods of Egypt or Babylon. But as for me, I'll serve the Lord. There, there's no middle ground here. If you're fearing the Lord, then it's going to eat away at your envy. And if you're envying the sinner, it's going to eat away at the fear of the Lord, and there's no in-between in that. Um, God gives. God gives five, ten, two. But God calls us to fear the Lord, quote, all the day. And that term means all the time. Um It's the same thing as the Hebrew writer saying, as long as it is called today, do this. Well, it will always be called today. It will always be today. So you are to fear the Lord all the day. It is uh, consistent, and you cannot do that if you envy the sinner. You must be content. You must be like the first century slave who was told, God knew all about where you were when he called you, and he gave you that. And nobody likes slavery. That's just kind of an assumption. But you are called to be content. Psalm 73 puts flesh on what Solomon is saying. The psalmist actually tells you the story of an event in his life. He says, surely God is good to Israel. He defines that by those who are pure in heart. 
The real Israel of God is not defined as being a physical descendant of Abraham. It's not defined as being part of a national group. It's your pure in heart. And the psalmist says, that's who Israel is. But I had nearly stumbled. I had nearly slipped. So when Solomon says, you can have the fear of the Lord or you can have envy, Psalm 73 is right there. My feet had nearly slipped. Why had they nearly slipped? Well, I looked at the wicked and I saw they were prosperous. I looked at evil men and I saw they have all the toys. And then for the next several verses, the psalmist beats you about the head and shoulders, effectively saying, I'm not kidding. The wicked really do. There's no pains in their death. Their, their strength is firm. They're not like other men. They're more healthy. Uh, even God's people look at them and lust for what they have, and it brings them into the orbit of wicked men because they see wicked men prospering, and they say, does God even know what he's doing? I mean, the wicked has everything, so I'll go drink from his well. When Psalm 73 says his people come here and they drink from the well, his people is a reference to God's people. This is seductive. The, the wicked's prosperity uh, makes even godly people compromise. Um, that's where we're at. And that section ends with, thus are the ungodly. They are always at ease. And the psalmist never walks it back. Things change in the story, but the psalmist never walks that back. Do you want to be considered a winner in life? Well, I would advise you to wickedness because the wicked do tend to have all the toys. And so if that's how you want to win, then wickedness is your way to go. Well, the psalmist didn't like that, and he was tempted to say, I've purified my heart in vain, I've served God in vain, I've been chastened all day long. Uh, Solomon would respond to him again and say, well, when God punishes you, that actually means he's treating you as a son. But the psalmist didn't see it there. I've been chastened all day long. I've had problems. How do I understand this? Well, he can't until he goes into the sanctuary of God. He goes into the temple of God. And in the temple of God, he begins to see the world from an eternal perspective. And he sees all those things that in midweek Bible study we've been talking about. The altar, the, the showbread, uh, the, the holy of holies there with the presence of God over the ark. Everything in here testifies to an eternal perspective. And the psalmist says, okay, now I really understand things. Surely you put them in slippery places. Surely you cast them down to destruction. In a moment, they're gone. When you awake, it's going to be like a dream. They're going to go away. In view of eternity, the psalmist can understand inequity. And he begins to talk about what he has, and what he has is, well, Lord, you belong to me. Surely you are with me, you take me by my hand, you walk with me as a friend, and then in the hereafter, I walk with you into glory. It's a statement in the Old Testament that is clearly a statement about eternal life, and the psalmist has worked out his envy problem, because... God is with me and God has given me God, I don't have to win the Monopoly game. About five years ago, six maybe, time gets on, uh, my friend Dave Pinnell was here and we were studying the book of Ecclesiastes and 
Dave had a remarkable insight. He said, you know, Solomon is almost describing life as a game of Monopoly. You play Monopoly when you don't have anything else to do. You're kind of running time out. And you have this game where you get property and you, you pass money back and forth and you build up empires of housing and that sort of thing. But it's not really real. At the end of this time period, when you have to put the board away and go do something else, nobody actually has any houses and it doesn't really matter. Nobody even really remembers who won or who lost, to be honest. I mean, it kind of fades into memory. Well, Solomon is almost describing reality as that's the way it is. We have some time on our hands. We're living. And so we're living in this world, but we are absolutely guaranteed to die. And in between, we're playing Monopoly. We're exchanging money and building empires and gaining stuff. But the box is going to be put away way quicker than you might imagine. And none of it, none of it matters in and of itself. Now, things might matter over the game. You might make friends. You might deepen relationships. But the game itself doesn't matter. The game itself is an illusion. And that's what the psalmist saw going into the temple in light of eternity, in light that God will walk me into eternity. And the fact that the wicked have all this stuff, honestly, let them have it. It's going to burn. But that does change our perspective, doesn't it? In Ecclesiastes, Solomon talked about everything, quote, under the sun, and that is everything you can see and perceive with your senses. It's a Hebraic phrase that basically means what I can see, touch, smell, taste, you know, everything the senses take. Under the sun, it looks like if there's going to be any sort of victory, it's going to be in this life, and it's going to be the guy who has the most toys. Because that's the most victory that it gets. All the way through Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, you know, I can't really put my finger on anything that really lasts. Uh, I eat, I drink, I find satisfaction in my labor, I live with the wife of my youth. All this is the gift of God, but all of it just totally goes away. Uh, it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Well, yes. Nihilism is the belief that we talked about before, that the only thing that exists is what your senses can perceive. And like I can conveyed to you, if you want to win all the toys, you should be wicked. Uh, if you want to be nihilistic, you really don't need to care one way or the other. Uh, covet your neighbor. Or don't. Who cares? Because nothing matters at all. You died with the most toys, but whether you are digging into the pauper's grave in the Egyptian sands or you're excavating the most magnificent of pyramids, in either place, you're just going to find moldering bones, and that's it. The psalmist had to see eternity. What does Solomon say? Well, Solomon says... In verse 18, which I need to turn back to. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. 
for, term means because, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Now that's the reading of the New King James Version, and it's right. But to establish its rightness, we kind of got to look at a number of other translations. Um, what it literally says is, if there is a changing end, if there is going to be a transformation of reality, and surely there is, your hope will not be cut off if you have the fear of the Lord. It's, it's fascinating to read how some translators have dealt with the concept. I take you again to the Bible from 26 translations here. Um, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. That's the Revised Standard Version. The translators kind of pretty iffy on whether eternal life is in the Old Testament. So they say, okay, there's a future and your hope won't be cut off. Well, everybody's hope gets cut off in time. Everybody dies. Um, Let not your heart envy sinners, but revere the Lord all the day long, for surely you will have a future and your hope will not be cut off. Let not thy heart be envious at sinners, but in the fear of Jehovah all the day. For is there a posterity? This one reads it as you're going to die, but your descendants will get stuff, so it'll be okay. Uh, never envy evil men, but always reverence the eternal. For something will yet come to you. Your hope will not be lost. That's Mofab. I don't know what's going to happen, but something will happen. Something good will happen, and you've got a lot of hope in it. But the Hebrew means there will be a transformation. This era, this way of being will come to an end, and there will be another era, another existence, another way of life, another reality. That's what the term implies, and that's what Solomon is saying. So the New King James is a little bold, but it actually gets at the essence of what it's saying. Uh, Fear the Lord all the day, don't envy sinners. For surely there is a coming afterlife. There's a coming hereafter. There's another reality. And surely your hope will not be removed. It will be continuous and perpetual into the hereafter. Well, you can hear a cynic listening to the proverb and saying, I'm not so sure about that sureness. You say there's coming hereafter you say that the hope of those who fear the Lord will be cut off but uh, I'm here kind of living under the sun and I'm not seeing it so why do you talk so boldly and say surely there is one well even in Solomon's day there was evidence and truth of that but the answer to this cynics question was forever answered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is really kind of dealing with this kind of spirit. In that famous passage in chapter 15, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, and several people say there, aren't any resur- there isn't a resurrection from the dead. And in 
verse 12 through 20, we read this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Those Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. I don't remember the philosopher's name, but he was a big name during the Renaissance. And he mocked Christians for having a hope in the hereafter. He says, sure, you look for the hereafter, but I'm living in the now, and I'm having a lot more fun than you. I have all the toys. It's literally like he's coming in and talking to the writer of Psalm 73 and saying, I have a counter plan. I have a rebuttal. And he did for his lifetime. But he said, how do you know there's a hereafter? How can you say there will be a hope after this life that means I don't have to envy the wicked? The, the, the scales are not going to be balanced here. What do you mean? Well, Paul says, what I mean is this. Jesus Christ talked about God, and then he died, and God raised him from the dead. God wouldn't have done that if what Jesus had said was not true of God, that God doesn't raise up apostates. But more than that, in our particular case, God raised a man from the dead never to die again, and there have been 2,000 years of people trying to disprove that, and by golly, if they could have, they would have by now. The resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ from the tomb is one of the most solidly established historical facts that has ever happened. So Solomon says, don't envy wicked men, fear God, because there is a hereafter and your hope will not be frustrated. Jesus Christ's resurrection validates that statement. Jesus Christ is alive, never to die again. And therefore, I would suggest you not to consider wickedness. I would consider nihilism not a good philosophy. Because God has demonstrated there is a hereafter because Jesus has walked into it as the first fruits, and he has shown us that it's there. But that is the only way the Bible's ethic about envy, covetousness, makes any sense. But thanks be to God, it has been shown to us that is what reality is. Jesus Christ lives to die no more. He walked among us. He spent 40 days with his disciples saying, okay, now I'm going to send you out. He ate with them. He drank with them. He talked with them. Jesus Christ is alive today. Surely there is a hereafter. Therefore, be not envious of wicked men.